If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. We're going to be looking at one verse this morning, verse 29. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 961. So today we're looking at just one verse. And it's a confusing verse. It's a controversial verse. In a book where we've seen many confusing and controversial passages. Remember we talked about head coverings and women keeping silent in church, among other verses that we've looked at. So to set the the context, the the big picture of this chapter, chapter 15, is the resurrection. And in this section, verses 29 to 34, Paul returns to a topic that he discussed in the first 19 verses of the chapter, the big problems that are caused if there is no resurrection. And Paul's first argument that he gave in verses 1 through 19 is that if, if there is no resurrection, then the dead of the dead, then Christ himself was not raised from the dead. And if Christ himself was not raised from the dead, then the gospel is useless. And those who have died in Christ, they are lost. Well, in this section, Paul gives a second argument for the absolute necessity of the resurrection. And we'll look at the entire section and the entire argument, Lord willing, in in two weeks when I'm back in the pulpit. But today we're going to look at and focus on this baffling verse so that we can understand what the Lord is teaching us in this verse. We, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for training and correction and rebuke. So we're going to look at this one and see how does this passage reply? How does this verse apply to us? What is the message for us? So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Let's pray. Father, I do pray for your spirit to be with me. I cannot say anything that is useful useful without it. Father, I pray for your spirit to open our hearts to hear from you. This is a confusing passage. This is one where there are many different ideas and understandings. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit will be with us and we will see it in a new light. And we will see you in a new light. And Father, I pray that you will use this time to bless us and to grow each one of us here more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, if any of you have ever done genealogy research, you know, researching your, your family tree, chances are you have come across the resources of the LDS Church. That's the, the Church of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. And the Mormon Church is <clears throat> well known for having some of the best genealogy records anywhere. And the question is, why is this? Why should the Mormons of all people have such precise records of of ancestry? Why would they have done all the thousands and thousands of hours of research to collect all these names? Well, it has to do with their theology. It has to do with the practice of performing vicarious baptisms for the dead. In fact, you may have remembered a few years ago, there was some controversy because the Mormons were actually, they got a list of of Holocaust victims, and they were being baptized for these Holocaust, Jewish Holocaust victims. And this, some of Jewish leaders saw this as very insulting to the Jewish people and a failure to respect their religion. But this was not meant to be disrespectful by the Mormons. According to Mormon theology, all people are given an opportunity to accept the Mormon faith. And even after death, 
They believe that Jesus and faithful Mormon missionaries will travel from the highest level of heaven, the celestial level. So in Mormon theology, there's actually three levels of heaven. There's the celestial level, which is for only for Mormons, and that's the highest level. That's when you actually can have be married and, and eventually become your own god for your own planet. And then there's the low, two lower ones. There's the terrestrial level. That's where, where all Christians would go, all good people. It's, it's, it's heaven. It's, it's joyous. But you don't get all those perks of the, of the celestial heaven, of the, of the Mormon heaven. And then there is their lowest level of heaven, which is the telestrial level, which is, which is really like where bad people would go. That would be like where Hitler and Stalin would go. It's, it's, it's not hell, but it's not as nice. It's, it's kind of like third-class heaven uh, for, for them. But they believe, they don't really believe in hell, or, or I should say the only people that would go to hell are, are people who are apostate Mormons. So if you were in the Mormon church and you left, that's the only persons, people who would go to the, to the fire and brimstone hell. But they believe, according to their theology, that these missionaries or, or Jesus himself can travel from the celestial heaven down to these terrestrial and telestrial heaven and proclaim the Mormon gospel. And people could actually receive the Mormon gospel and become Mormons even after death. And they can enter then this highest heaven. And that's where, that's where, again, you get to have your spirit wife. You can eventually become a god of your own planet. But there's one other requirement to enter this celestial heaven is Mormon baptism. And the problem is these souls, these new Mormon convert souls, they are dead. They don't have a physical body in which to be baptized. So to solve this problem, living Mormons are baptized on behalf of these dead People who have, so that they will be able to uh, enter into celestial heaven. So they do these vicarious baptisms. And this is the reason for the extensive genealogy, uh, this database, because a faithful Mormon would find all the, all the names of all their ancestors who were not Mormons, and they would, in hope that they would be converted in the afterlife, they would be baptized on, vicariously baptized on behalf of these relatives, and then in the hope that they would be reunited in the celestial heaven. Now, from a Christian perspective, this seems very bizarre, and this is completely antithetical to a biblical understanding of the sacrament of baptism and its purpose. We rightly understand that baptism is personal. It's individual. You cannot be baptized for another person. And it may not surprise you that this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, is used by Mormons to justify the practice of vicarious baptism for the dead. And I remember when I was a relatively new Christian and I was seeking to defend orthodoxy, when I first encountered this uh, Mormon argument for the practice of the baptism of the dead, and they referred to this verse. And I looked at this verse, and I, I, I was ready to, to smash their argument. I looked at the verse, and I had no response. The verse off to me actually seemed to support their, their argument. I couldn't understand really what Paul meant. I knew it wasn't right, but I couldn't, from that verse, understand what it meant. And to tell the truth, both people don't understand what it meant. There, there really is no consensus among the scholars. As I, as I was researching this and looking at various commentaries, there's not really a consensus. It's not just today. The vast literature goes back to the second century, and they didn't even know what it meant back then. And one scholar quipped, when there is such a wide divergence of opinion, no one really knows what in fact was going on. So no one really knows what Paul was actually talking about, what practice he is referencing here. And this fact alone should humble us with respect to this verse. It means we can't be dogmatic in proclaiming its, its meaning. There are several reasonable interpretations, reasonable options, but we also must refrain from using this verse as a cornerstone of theology because, it's, it, because it, again, it's so 
so obscure. Remember our reform principle. We don't take an obscure passage and use that as the grid to interpret everything else, but rather we do the opposite. We interpret the difficult passages in light of the more clear passages. So we're going to look at a few of these reasonable and some unreasonable options for this verse. And then based on my, my study and prayerful research of this verse, I'm going to, and this reformed principle of, of Scripture interprets Scripture, and based on the context, I'm going to present what my understanding of this verse is, well, as well as some of the implications of this interpretation, how we can apply them to ourselves today at this moment. And as always, when interpreting an obscure passage, and I did this often, if you remember when I was preaching through the book of Revelation a few years ago, it's important to make sure that our conclusions fall within the bounds of orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy. And we use our confessional standards to define biblical orthodoxy. And we also want to make sure that our conclusions can be defended by other biblical passages, not just the one obscure passage that we happen to be studying. See, it's dangerous. It's dangerous if we build a theological system on some obscure, highly symbolic verse. There's a very good chance, if we do that, that we will lead to error, that we will lead to heresy. We don't, the thing is, when we're doing, we don't want to be original. We don't want to come up with something that no one saw before. If you come up with an with a interpretation of the Bible that no one has ever saw before, chances are almost absolutely 100% that you are heretical with that view. So following this principle, the worst thing that will happen is I will preach that some biblically true uh, concept, but it's not true to the specific passage. So I'll basically be preaching something that is true, that is biblical, but this passage doesn't teach it. Again, that's, that's not ideal, but it's still much better than preaching error. So that said, let's look at some of these interpretations of, these, of this passage. First off, the most natural reading of this passage suggests a vicarious baptism for someone on, uh, by someone getting, getting baptized himself on behalf of or in place of or for the benefit of an unbaptized dead person. This is the most plain reading of the Greek text. This is the way that our Mormon friends interpret this verse. But is this what it means? Is this what it means? And if it is what it means, what is Paul getting at here? So given this exegetical weight of this straightforward interpretation, there have been many speculations about the situation. So one explanation is that Christians were actually being baptized for family members who had had died and had not been baptized. And these family members may have been anywhere on the spectrum to to become a believer. They could have been totally against it, hard-hearted, closed, hostile. Or they could have been skeptical, but inquiring. They could have been open. They could have been learning. They could have even made a confession of faith, but just weren't baptized yet. And in the early church, it was not uncommon to have a group known as catechumens. And these people were studying to become Christians. And they were being catechized. They were studying, like like we studied the Westminster Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. They had catechisms that they they studied, and they were being trained in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And this process could go on for some time. It could go on for years. And it would accumulate, it, 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 would, it would come to a point at their baptism, they would be admitted to the church. And often the early church sometimes would only have these baptisms once a year, so on Easter Sunday. So they could have been in this process. And the speculation is that some of these people may have already come to faith, made a profession of faith, but they were not yet baptized yet. And these family members saw this lack of baptizing 
as preventing them from, from entering into heaven or participating in the resurrection of the dead. So pretty much the same logic that the Mormons had. You know, different, different heaven, of course, but thinking that this was something that needed to be done that, because it's preventing them from entering into heaven. Now, the problem with this view is that it's clearly heretical. It's heretical on multiple levels. See, baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ, of our membership of God's covenant community. Baptism is not regenerative. Baptism does not save us. Right? The thief on the cross is a clear example of this fact. Jesus himself said, today you will be with me in paradise. Clearly he was saved, but he was not baptized. He was on a cross. He was in the process of being crucifi- crucified. They didn't say, well, let's pour some water on and baptize him. No, he was not. And even if baptismal regeneration were true, which it clearly is not, there's absolutely no support anywhere in Scripture for vicarious baptism. In fact, we see the exact opposite is true. Peter's uh, rousing sermon that he gave in Pentecost, at the end of the sermon in Acts 2, people say, now, now when they had heard the sermon, they were cut to the heart. So they were, they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit had converted them during, Paul, during Peter's sermon. And it regenerated them. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you. This is individual baptism. You say, just one, you pick one guy there, he gets baptized and it's good for the rest of you. No, everyone individual needed to be baptized. Each of them receives the sign and seal signifying their individual union with Christ and their individual membership in the covenant community. Furthermore, there's absolutely no historical evidence whatsoever that baptisms for the dead were practiced among the apostolic church. And proponents of this view acknowledge this, but they say that it must have been just very few people did it, and it was only practiced in Corinth. Now, there actually were records of vicarious baptisms. They did occur in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, but they were not done by the Christian church. They were done by Gnostic heretics, and they were clearly condemned by the early Greek fathers. So those who hold this view, other than Mormons, of course, they don't claim that Paul endorses it. They say this was something that was happening, but, but Paul is by no means endorsing this practice of baptism for the dead. But rather, he's just referring to something that they've did, uh, that was taking place, that, that was known by the Corinthians. And he was using this for the, for the sake of argument. It was part of his argument that the dead were raised. And this was really the view that I had prior to, to studying this. My, my view was, yeah, it happened, and, and some did it, but Paul was not really endorsing it. He was just, he was just using it as part of his, his argument. And they see this similar to Paul's quoting of pagan uh, poets in, in Athens in, in Acts 3. Uh, he's not endorsing the poets, but rather he's starting with a familiar reference to make a point. But it, is this the same thing? Is this the same situation as Acts 17? In Acts 17, Paul is proclaiming truth. Even though the source is a, a, a pagan poet, it is true. This is an example of God's common grace, where God provides knowledge of, of, of himself to people who are not believers. We see this all the time. If this was the case, we would not, uh, you know, we would not uh, buy a, a, a car designed by a non-Christian because we wouldn't believe they know truth. They know how to just design a car. No, there is common grace. So that's what Paul was doing. And Paul is not endorsing all of the, the poets. Rather, he's using this familiar reference that, that talks truth to make a point. But that's not the situation here. In, in, um, you know, he was addressing unbelievers in, Cor- in uh, Athens. But that's not the, the, the situation with this letter. This letter is written to believers. 
And even if there were a practice held by some in, in the Corinthian church, do you really think that Paul would have been shy about pointing out this practice? Say this really was what they were doing. Do you think Paul would have just kind of glanced by it? Right. Remember, we've been studying this letter. What is this letter about? 1 Corinthians is a letter of rebuke. Paul is not shy at all pointing out all these major, major errors that they had. So you think he would have just allowed some major misunderstanding about, about baptism to, to, to go without saying anything? And it's not a minor issue. If they really thought that baptism was required for salvation, this hits at the heart of the gospel. This is every bit as serious as, as all the other issues that Paul addresses in this letter. He certainly would have addressed it. And to make matters worse, according to this interpretation, Paul not only ignores a major theological error held by the Corinthians, he also uses this errant practice in support of an argument, giving implicit support of the practice. He's using it. It makes it look like he's supporting it. And this is a point that he has already made. So he's already made. He doesn't need this this further argument. So I think I think our Mormons actually have a better understanding than many Christian scholars of what Paul is using. That that that, that they say Paul is only using this as an example and doesn't really support it. Now, does it really make sense? Does it really make sense that he would just use this to make one point, a point that he's already made, and and introduce all this? You know, basically open a Pandora's box of theological problems. It's kind of like I was wanted to argue with someone that it's important to have homeowner's insurance. And I would say, why would you burn down your house if you don't have fire insurance? It makes no sense to say that. It was like I'm supporting insurance fraud. We wouldn't do that. So I don't think it makes any sense that vicarious baptism of the dead is what Paul is talking about in this passage. First of all, it opposes scripture. It opposes Paul's own understanding of baptism. There's no historical evidence of the practice, at least among Orthodox Christian churches. So there must be other, there must be other uh, explanations of this verse. <clears throat> and some of these explanations I don't really find compelling. I'm not going to spend a lot of time refuting. One of these views is that they were not vicarious baptism. They were actually, the people living were getting baptized themselves, but it's, it has to do with the motivation for the baptism. The motivation for the baptism was to have some kind of fellowship, some kind of union with the, with the people who had gone before and people who had died and hope that if they're being baptized, they will then one day be reunited with the dead during a time of, of resurrection. So the argument is if, if there's no resurrection, then this practice is pointless. So, so a way to restate it would be now if there's no resurrection, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized because of what they have heard about how our dead will be raised? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people undergoing baptism on account of them? But again, this is still very speculative. It may solve the problem of vicarious baptisms and possibly the problem of some type of baptismal regeneration, but it still gives a very faulty understanding of and, and a motivation of baptism. See, we're not baptized for the hope of fellowship with dead loved ones who went before us. We are baptized first and foremost because Christ commands it. And it's a sign, the seal of our union with him and our membership in the covenant community. Now, a variation of this view sees the dead not as physically dead, but actually as representing the apostles and, and their, their suffering. Now, a strength of this view is, is that it fits in well in the immediate context with verses 30 to 32. So if you look at verse 30, it says, we are in danger every hour. Verse 31, I die every day. Verse 32, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. 
So Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that his apostolic role is really as one as dead. And the apostles, because of their suffering for the sake of Christ, are regarded figuratively as dead. So according to this view, being baptized on on behalf of the dead was being baptized on behalf of the apostles. And this view fits with one of the earliest problems we saw in this letter. Remember the factions that we saw early on? You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Well, perhaps they saw baptism as bringing solidarity with their favorite apostle. And the problem with this view is, do you think Paul would have tolerated this type of distortion of the meaning of baptism and this type of hero worship? Yes, it's true that the Corinthian church was plagued by sinful factions, but Paul strongly and unequivocally condemned this practice. Does it seem reasonable that he would allow it now? And while both of these views solve some of the problems with the straightforward vicarious baptism view, both are very speculative. And I find both to be unsatisfying and and really of no practical benefit for us in the modern church. So now I come to the view that that I hold. And again, this this is not a unique view by any means. It actually was held by some of the Greek fathers. So it's it's a relatively old view. And this understanding of this verse is actually, it's very simple. Paul is referring to regular Christian baptism. That's what he's talking about. Why are you being baptized? Regular Christian baptism. The dead here is is metaphorical. It's a description of the condition of those who are baptized. And again, this fits with with our context. We are dead in Adam, as we looked at a few weeks ago. And this is consistent with Paul's discussion of the significance of baptism that we read, that uh, Hal read for us in Romans chapter 6, is our New Testament reading. We died with Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So at regeneration, we are made spiritually alive in Christ. We are united to Christ. We are united to Christ both body and soul. However, you know, everyone here who is a Christian, we are united to Christ body and soul. However, our bodies still face corruption. You've heard all the prayers that I had, all the surgeries that people are getting. Our bodies are still subject to decay. And even after we become a new creation in Christ, our bodies still physically die. But baptism serves as a seal and an exhibit and a guarantee of the promises that are not only that we are spiritually alive in Christ at conversion, but at the resurrection, our body too will be united, that is already united to Christ, our body will be raised incorruptible. So baptism is, is God's guarantee of the future reality. And Paul's argument is something like this. If the dead are not raised, then why are you being baptized? If the dead are not raised, then baptism is a lie. See, it's a lie because if the dead are not raised, it is a guarantee of something that is not true. We even read that in our our, um, catechism uh, confession, that it is a guarantee of our resurrection. See, baptism is is a sacrament. It's a means of grace. It is a work of grace. And many of us, many of us have a misunderstanding of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have a misunderstanding that they are primarily something that we do. The sacraments are primarily something we do. We see baptism primarily as as a public profession of faith. 
either by the individual in the case of a believer's baptism or by the parents in the case of an infant baptism. Now, this is a purpose, but this is not the primary purpose of the sacrament. Now, the sacraments are not primarily something we do, but rather they are something that God does. And this is why they are called means of grace. In this sacrament, God pours out his grace on his church. In baptism and in the Lord's Supper, God is the primary actor. Baptism is a one-time sacrament, marking our inclusion as God's covenant people. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing, sustaining sacrament, celebrating the central event in redemptive history. That is the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And both baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are outward and sensible signs. Sensible means that they can be perceived through our physical senses. And they are outward and sensible signs of the spiritual reality of our union with Christ. And what is the current reality of our union with Christ? Well, current reality is our justification. That is, we are declared not guilty in God's sight, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We also have adoption. We are adopted. We are no longer God's enemies, but we are his beloved children in Christ. And we have definitive sanctification. That means we are now free from slavery to sin. Before we, were, before we were regenerated, all we could do is sin. Now we actually have the power to restrain sin, to, to not sin. Not perfectly, but we actually have the power to please God. Before we regenerated, nothing we could do would please God. And these are the current realities that all believers enjoy in this life due to our union with Christ. And that union with Christ occurs not at the time of the administration of the sacrament, but at the moment of our regeneration. The moment of our conversion, when the Holy Spirit takes us from death to life, from being in Adam to being in Christ. And this regeneration could be either before or after the administration of baptism. And regeneration should always be before the participation in the Lord's Supper. That's why we require both, both baptism and a profession of faith for children to come to the table, to the Lord's Supper. But baptism and the Lord's Supper are not only signs not only signs of our union with Christ and these current realities, but they are also seals, promises of future realities that we have because of our union with Christ. So what does this mean? This means they provide a sensible seal of the final promises associated with our union with Christ. They are God's guarantee that he will complete what he started in us. When we see the elements of water and bread, wine, they're, they're like seeing God's signature on a contract. That all these things that he has promised will be given to us. We will have all these things. Promises of realities that we do not now possess at this very moment. These are future realities due to our union with Christ. So what are some of these future realities? Well, they include progressive sanctification. That means we will become more and more like Christ. We will be able to die more and more to our sinful nature and live like Christ, become less sinful. Another future reality of our union with Christ is glorification, the complete eradication of all remaining sin in us. And we have promises that we will one day be completely sinless, just like our Savior. That is a guarantee of our union with Christ. And the final promise of our union with Christ, the final reality that the sacraments seal for us, that that it's God's signature on the contract for us, is the complete resurrection and glorification of our physical bodies in Christ at his second coming. And this future reality 
is not only uh, is not only sealed in baptism, but it's also sealed in the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, they are seals. They are physical elements that we can see, that we can feel, that we can smell, we can taste. If you're, if you're close, you can hear we crack the, the bread. You can hear it, and they convey God's guarantee. When we hear that, when we experience this, we, it's like seeing a contract. It's like seeing God's signature. He will fulfill what he has promised, these future realities of our union with Christ. And my friends, when we truly understand this, We'll no longer see the sacraments as some, some boring ritual that we do once in a while, but we will see them as real and tangible means of grace, real and tangible means of blessings, something that we will yearn for, something that we will need to have. And I remember during COVID, during COVID, when we were deprived from the Lord's Supper for several months, it had effect. Many of us, we, we, we felt it. We missed it. We needed it. And Paul's argument in this verse, verse 29, is that, if the dead are not raised, then God is a liar. If the dead are not raised, then the seal of the sacrament is worse, worthless because its promise is a reality, a resurrection that does not exist if the dead are not raised. And there is no reason to be baptized if the dead are not raised. There's no need to celebrate the Lord's Supper if the dead are not raised. So what does this mean for us? What is our practical application of this one verse today? Is it simply to be able to refute the Mormons, this, this practice of vicarious baptism for the dead? Well, in part, yes. See, one of the reasons why I don't shy away from these difficult texts, like head coverings or women remaining silent, or when we looked at judges of, of the brutality that we saw in judges, is that these obscure texts are often used by unbelievers to attack the faith, to say your faith makes no sense. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's inconsistent. Or... They use this to, to introduce error and heresy. And part of what I did today, going through, walking through my process, is really to model how we should approach these difficult texts. Our, and this approach will help us to, to, from falling victim to heretical interpretations or falling apart when an unbeliever challenges us on one of these interpretations and we can't figure out how to answer it. I could think of this sermon as, as a heresy inoculation. That's basically what we see. So in order to be protected, first of all, we need to know the overall message of Scripture. We need to understand the theological framework of the entire Bible, not just the one verse that's in question, all of Scripture. And all of Scripture teaches one thing. It's one purpose. It's Christ. It points to Christ. It glorifies Christ. Christ is central to the Bible. The gospel is central to the, go to the, to the Bible. So if we understand that, the gospel, we understand Christ, that starts off. That gives us the framework. And this is also where creeds and, and confessions are so helpful. Why do you think we, we say a, a, a creed or, or, or a catechism question every week? It's so we understand, so we think the way the Bible thinks. And these, these creeds and confessions, what they do is they give us boundaries. They set boundary lines for biblical orthodoxy. And these are time-tested uh, documents that incorporate the scholarship of theologians throughout church history. We're not reinventing things. We're, we're, we're standing on the, the shoulders of giants before us. And it gives us this unified message of Scripture. See, if, if an interpretation, if we go through a, a verse, and this interpretation falls outside these boundary lines, this should be a red flag. It should be ding, 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 ding. If I come up with this interpretation that's outside the boundary of our confession, this could be a problem. It could be heretical. And it needs further investigation. 
Now I say it should. It's a, it's a red flag. It's not saying that it's absolutely a problem, because we believe in sola scriptura. We believe that God's word is the is the criteria, not the confession, not the creeds. And the confession and the creeds they have authority only as far as they are accurately reflect the teaching of scripture, as long as they're in accordance with scripture. But when we come to an interpretation of verse or passage that's outside that boundary of the confession, we need to go and we need to do further interpretation. We need to look at the confession. We need to look at the scriptural proofs and say, why did the confession say this? And look at the scripture and have scripture, uh, scripture interpreting scripture. See, we know scripture speaks with one voice. It doesn't contradict itself. So we use the clearer passages to interpret the more obscure passages. And this is exactly what I did. The idea of a vicarious baptism for the dead is outside the boundary of the, of the confession. It's outside the boundary of Scripture. It's foreign to what anything, any other passage in Scripture teaches. It's contradicted even by clear passages. So that cannot be a valid interpretation. The next thing we need to do is look at the context. And we looked at the context of the whole letter. We saw that the letter is primarily a letter of rebuke. It's a letter where all these areas where the, where the Corinthians missed the mark, Paul is correcting them. And due to this context, it doesn't make sense that Paul would fail to rebuke an errant practice of vicarious baptism of the dead and, and, and uses, even furthermore, he uses an example to make his point. So this really eliminates that this interpretation, this practice was actually vicarious baptism, whether or not Paul was endorsing it or not. It just doesn't fit the context of the letter. We also looked at the historical data. They said, did, did this actually happen? Was this really a problem? Do we have other data that says it? Nowhere do we have data, no evidence that this was actually a problem in this church or any of the apostolic churches. And lastly, we look at the immediate context and ask which view best fits this immediate context. Now, while scholars still come, can come up with different views, this process helps protect us from being deceived and falling into heretical interpretations. So this is a good skill to have regardless of the difficulty of this passage. But what about the specific question? What's the specific application of this verse for us today sitting here? Right? It says, otherwise, I'm going to read this verse again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Well, we know that the dead are raised. So there is a benefit of being baptized on behalf of the dead. And if I am correct in my interpretation of this verse, this is basically speaking of a benefit of a normal Christian baptism, which is a sign and seal of our union with Christ. There is a benefit for it. And we have a very, my application is just one. It's one specific and one extremely impactful application from this verse. And I believe that if we can internalize this application and we can consistently put it into practice, I believe it has the power to completely revolutionize our Christian life. I believe it, it can increase the, the fruitfulness of our Christian walk by an order of magnitude. Our joy, our effectiveness, our faithfulness, our obedience, our confidence, our victory over sin, our sanctification, all can grow by an order of magnitude. And what is that application? Well, we're about to apply it in a few minutes. That application is for us to sincerely appreciate, earnestly desire, diligently attend to God's gracious provision to us through the sacraments. See, we, we all look 
for many things. We look to many things that are not biblical to strengthen our faith, to increase our love for God, to make God seem more real to us. We look to conferences. We look to retreats. We look to concerts. We look to mission trips. We look to big, spectacular events. And there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. There is a place for these things. But while we seek these other things, do we neglect the thing that God has actually provided for us and promised in his word to accomplish this very thing that we are seeking? The means of grace. Worship. The word read. The word preached. Prayer. And the sacraments. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, or at least every week that I'm in town. I'll be out of town next week, so we won't have it. But this is why we regularly bring communion to shut-ins. We go to Gwen Baldwin's house. A bunch of us get together. We bring communion to her. We believe that it's that important. It's that important. So this application is simple. Sincerely appreciate, earnestly desire, and diligently attend to God's gracious provision through the sacraments. And then, my friend, stand back and be amazed. Be amazed what God does through you and does, does in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your means of grace. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us. And we thank you for the sacrament that we are about to receive. Father, I pray that you will prepare our hearts to be ready to receive the grace, the grace that is in us at this moment, that signifies the realities of our union with Christ, but also the seal of the promise of the things that will take place, the guarantee. And one of them is that we will be raised. Our bodies may be falling apart at this moment, but we will be raised at the second coming, and we will be have no, no sin, we will have no ailments, no sickness, and we will live for, for eternity in perfect fellowship with you and your saints. Father, help us to realize that reality. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.